Broadcasting from an undisclosed location in South Texas, this is an on-quarantine edition of American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. Here's your hosts, Ben Dietrich and Teddy Burkofer. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of American View on Quarantine from our undisclosed location in Texas. This morning, we were joined by Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. I think you'll be very impressed with what he had to say uh, about the origins of this virus and some things that haven't really been talked about too much on the mainstream news. We go now to our interview with Dr. Hansen. Joining us once again, he was on the show earlier this year, is Victor Davis Hansen. He's a senior fellow in military history at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is also a distinguished fellow in history at Hillsdale College, and he's the author of more than two dozen books, but the most recent one that's been a bestseller has been The Case for Trump, and there's actually an updated version of it that was just released on March 17th. Uh, Dr. Hansen, thank you for joining us once again. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk um, about a couple of things, but the first thing I thought was very fitting for a Hillsdale audience was an article you wrote, I believe it was last week, um, and it was about uh, the potential Dr., uh, Donald Trump has to lead the United States in this coronavirus fight, and you referenced um, a word, strategic pernoia. foresight, pernoia. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, that to me sounded a lot like the type of statesmanship and prudence we learn about in classes with Dr. Arn at Hillsdale College. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what we can learn from history about these times of crisis and um, what Donald Trump would have to do to kind of fit that bill in the future. Yeah. Well, I think most people in the ancient world thought that strategic leadership was successful when a leader possessed as Thucydides said, Pericles and Themistocles did, the ability to see where you want to be in the future. Not that you'll be there, but to add up your advantages versus the disadvantages that are facing you and then make a risk assessment and see that you can win if you make the right decisions and then to convey that optimism, guarded though it is, to the people. So... Yeah, Winston Churchill, when you're in the middle of the blitz and everybody's losing their heads, and they said, France has fallen, we have no chance. France had a bigger army than we did. What are we going to do? All of Europe's under occupation. And Churchill looks at the, at the Royal Navy and he says, we have a 10 to 1 capital ship advantage over Germany. We're going to have allies within a year like the United States and Russia. They're much more powerful than Italy and Japan. And the RAF is building more Spitfires per month than the Germany's building DF-109s. And then, therefore, he understands the peril and disadvantages because we can get through this. And he knows how, he sees a pathway how to win. And that type of leadership, Lincoln had it after Fredericksburg or Chancellorsville or the summer of 1864. A lot of people wanted to have a negotiated settlement, but he kept saying, I've got two generals now, Sherman and Grant. We've got a greater population base, greater industrial base, uh, a Navy, a blockade, and they don't, and we can win if we keep our head. And so Trump has to see where that magic moment is that he's got to take some risk and put the co economy back to work and then find a strategy to parlay uh, economic growth as a way of helping us out of this crisis, both in humanitarian and medical terms, but also in reducing suicides and stress, substance abuse, because mm -hmm. we're getting to the point as we start to gradually see a descent in cases. And I'm speaking in California, 40 million people that we've had, I think about 240 dead so far. So it's about three or four per million. So you said we're on a descent or an ascent? I think we're on a descent. I know that the cases will be increasing, but they're increasing at a slightly smaller rate each day. And we right. in California are, of course, an outlier because we were told by our governor that we were going to have 25 million cases. And I think we have about mm -hmm. 11,000. So you bring up an interesting point there because um, a lot of the information that we've been told about the virus, the you know the predictions on how many people would die, they've changed a lot uh, since this, this virus first became a major news story. And part of what the president has to do, it seems, is 
um, you know, take it, take to advice what the experts have been saying and, and what they want us to do with regards to quarantines. And like you said, also consider the economic consequences, the consequences um, to regular Americans of being in this quarantine. Um, is it fair to say that when you look back at history to great leaders like Lincoln uh, or Churchill, as you referenced, that most of the people at the time, the experts didn't necessarily agree with the decisions they were making? Oh, yeah. I mean, when Churchill took over on May 10th in 1940, there were members of the royal family and also the conservative party that wanted to, Halifax did, they wanted to cut a deal with the Germans. And they didn't know how to get around Churchill. And he just announced that anybody who continued discussions with the Germans through third parties would be held culpable. And he even said to royal family, any member that negotiates with a German will be considered guilty of treason. So he had a lot of opposition. Lincoln, remember, in 1864, for a while, it looked like he'd have two, uh, he would have not only McClellan running against him, but uh, John C. Fremont. And both of them were bitter. And this was right, you know, after things like the wilderness and seven days. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the terrible arithmetic that Lincoln had to deal with the army of the Potomac losing a hundred thousand casualties on trying to in vain capture Richmond. So yeah, every leader has to deal with that. In Trump's case right now, his biggest attack is an election year and people are saying he created an impeachable offense because he didn't immediately issue a travel ban. He he was the first major country to do it on on January 3rd first and the people who were criticizing him for doing that belatedly were criticizing him at the time for doing it prematurely and now mm-hmm. i think i'm reading today that they said he downplayed the virus but if you juxtapose what he said in late january it's something analogous to the flu that was exactly what anthony fauci was saying in the cdc and the fda not to mention the world health organization so Every leader has that problem, and the greatest discussion of it I know in literature is Thucydides' encomium to Pericles after his death, where he says he had the unique ability to lift people's spirits up when they were depressed and to calm them down and when they were overly exuberant and to realize that human nature being what it is, that when people, when things go well, everybody wants to be a supporter, and when things don't go well, you're essentially an orphan. Yeah, that's the way people are. Now, and you mentioned there um, an argument I think that, that is really coming into play, and in this argument that if President Trump would have acted differently, this could have all been prevented. We've seen this um, by a lot of the liberal pundits on TV. Now, you re- led with an article yesterday um, arguing that America is actually leading the world. Um, against the coronavirus outbreak. And I, I want to ask you about that as well. Um, you mentioned some of the reasons, the travel ban that President Trump has put into place. Um, w- what are other reasons that you think that the president, or that America and the president are succeeding right now in fighting this virus? Well, there's only two numbers that, that matter right now. And that is that we know, and that's the number of deaths. I'm not suggesting that we know that every person who died of coronavirus can be counted, but I think that's exaggerated because I think people are dying from other reasons in addition to having the virus. But nevertheless, that's a number that's accurate. And then we have, we don't know the number of cases. We have no idea the number of cases because we have just a fraction of number being tested. So obviously the death rate is, is scarier than it actually really is per case. But we do have the number of population bases. We know the size of Michigan or California or the United States or Germany. And so when you want to look at the lethality, you can compare New York to California. We we have about three million uh three per four three to four per million dying and New York's got about uh sixty. That's a big difference. And if you look at European countries, I mean some of them are 1,500 per million, and Germany's about 14. Well, the United States was about 12. It's about 18 or 19. Yeah. So that's pretty good. It's better than any other country except for Germany and I think South Korea, which is a special case in Japan. Why do you think Germany's done so well? 
It's a good question because it applies to all of these numbers. And I have a feeling that one of the reasons, of course, it has better medical care than in France or Italy, but also I think they're counting, from what I can understand, they're counting deaths a little differently. And by that I mean if somebody dies with the coronavirus but is on a ventilator for having the flu earlier or pulmonary distress or congestive heart failure, they don't necessarily count that as a coronavirus death. They don't take an autopsy is what I'm saying. If they're not sure, most countries when somebody's elderly and dies of lung failure on a ventilator, they'll if they didn't know he was infected or she was, they will test and then they'll find out what Germany doesn't do tests on autopsies at all. So I'm not sure that their death rate is as accurate as they insist to us. That's but interesting. There, but there is something about, I mean, when you cross into Austria and then into Germany from Italy, you can see that people are much more distant to one another than they are in Italy. People don't kiss you on the cheek. Yeah. And the German, uh, you don't see as many young people living with grandparents in the same house or multi-generational families. And you just don't see as many Chinese that, when I go to Milan or northern Italy, it, it reminds me of China. I mean, it's it's got a half a million Chinese there. Right. And there's, but we have to keep in mind all these idiosyncratic factors. Why is California doing so well? It's not because the governor's done anything. Our shutdown was just a, two or three days earlier than New York. It's mm-hmm. not because we're warmer, because there's states like Arizona and New Mexico and Louisiana that are warmer, and they're not doing especially that well and so we're trying to figure out what it is and there has to be either one of two reasons that we have a terrible state government by that i mean we have the the highest poverty rate we have the highest number of people in public assistance one about every three people in a california hospital has diabetes or pre-diabetes worst ratio of doctors and nurses to ten a hundred thousand population etc etc greatest number of homelessness so it doesn't make any sense except are we so inept and we are inept here at the state government that we're not testing right or we're delayed in reporting that could be possible but it wouldn't i think affect the deaths because the deaths are done by local county coroners usually they're pretty good and they're aggregated so people have suggested and i've written about it that we had about 7,000 people coming from China, some days in 8, 9, 10,000 per day, about half the U.S. total, and sometimes mm-hmm. exceeded 70% in the LAX, San Francisco. We're talking November, December, January. And then even after the cutoff, we had over a million and a half Chinese come in the United States through Europe, Europe or the U.K., and then we have another quarter million that couldn't get back. So what I'm getting at is that now that the, the Chinese keep backdating the original case load from late from mid-January to late December to early Jan- uh, December to sometime in November. And the Italians say it was there now in late October. Yeah. So, so you can see what I'm getting at. A state like California for 90 days had 1 million people, including about 23 to 25 flights a month from Wuhan directly into San Francisco and LAX. So when you bring a million people from an epidemic zone, the idea that you didn't have carriers is absurd. And we may have been the first place target zero. And what we thought was, was a flu. And it was a very bad flu year in California. And it was most people who got tested, very few people get tested the flu, but we know that most people that got tested did not have influenza A. And they didn't so test for B, so they, they thought, well, maybe it is B, but I'm suggesting there might have been 10 or 20% of the population, maybe as high as 10 million, that got some illness and they thought it was the flu. And we will find that out in a couple of weeks when we do these demographically representative antibody tests yeah i was going to ask you about that these these antibody tests because it sounds like you're suggesting that if the flu the coronavirus has been here much earlier than we realized then with the antibody tests it means a lot of people could potentially have immunity to the virus as well is is that what you're getting at 
I am. And I think that might explain why had we done, uh, had we had the news accounts and focused on it, we might have been in the worst place in December and January because uh, the CDC, if you go back and look at what they were writing in October, November, December, they said California has had its earliest and worst experience of the flu. It's one of three states that hasn't done well with the flu and has had 16 outbreaks in September. And it was basically a pretty pessimistic story. And then it said, unusually early this year and unusually not influenza A. And some of the descriptions of what they thought would likely be some kind of strain of B was pretty close to some of the coronavirus symptoms. But we'll see if they if they get the right, and the Stanford epidemiologists who are talking about this are saying that they can take samples of a 1,000 people and calibrate them toward representative age, gender, race, occupation, urban, rural, et cetera, and then so, get a, a number of how many have them and then apply that to the California population and the United States population. And you can so, see what's going to happen when they do that. We know the case number is going to be larger than the reported case of people who don't feel well and go get tested. So the lethality rate per case is going to go way down. I think nationwide now it's it was 1.4. It's up to nearly 2% of everybody who gets it dies. And yet hmm. that denominator could be what uh, by a factor of 10 underreported. So if you, it could be if you have 10 times as many people that have been exposed and gotten over or didn't have symptoms but carry the antibody, we could have not 2%, we could have 0.2%, which would be just about what the flu is. So I just want to make sure that the listeners are following where we're at here. If it's 0.2% and a fatality rate of 0.2% and it's a lot lower than we thought and this virus has been here for a lot longer and a big sum of the population um, has already had it, then does that mean that we could see the quarantines lifted much sooner than some estimates are? So what Trump is trying to do, and it's the political year, he's got this booming economy that now has been artificially curtailed. And he knows he's only got seven months before the election. And he knows that the number of people who are going to die from suicide, anxiety, stress, substance abuse will be bigger than the virus probably if he continues. So he wants to start calibrating regions, counties, states that have low rates that can start staggered recoveries and get back to a normal life. But he can't do that politically if people believe this is not the flu. This is something so deadly. When they, when the media has some marathon guy in his 30s that just drops dead and that's considered representative, then people go crazy. And they're not at that point yet that they want, according to polls, to get back out yet because they're terrified. So if we can do five, six, seven of these in the next 10 days and then our epidemiologists come back and say, you know what, this suggests how many people actually as a percent have of the country have had exposure but more importantly this is the size of a known caseload and these we know the deaths and we're going now we have an accurate denominator that we divide and when we have that if that lethality rate goes from two and a hundred to two and a thousand then trump and people will say this is just exactly like the influenza year we're having right now that's already killed thirty thousand people tragically, and infected 40 million, but did not shut down the economy, and therefore we're going to go back. But let me ask you this. If that's the case, I guess a lot of people would wonder, okay, why were there so many uh, deaths and the need for additional hospitals in places like Italy or China, um, where we've seen shortages of ventilators? Um, The normal flu doesn't necessarily usually cause such a, a massive reaction in that sense, would it? Well, a number of cases, the average age of death in Italy is 81 years old. And as I said earlier, there are conditions that are unique to Spain and Italy that are not true of the Netherlands or Sweden. Why are people in Sweden not locked down or Denmark and they have a far less death rate than Italy is locked down? The answer is that in the case of Italy, it was having about a half a million Chinese fly in directly all of 
January, February when they were exposed. And then the people who were the most vulnerable, elderly men, and they have a the average age of Italians about 10 years higher than Americans. The number of smokers is about 15 to 20 percent higher than right. Americans. The number of older people who live in the same household with young people is much higher than Americans. They're much less in normal times uh, likely to distance themselves. Their social space is much smaller than most people in Germany, for example. You know, mm. if you go see a German and you want to shake hands with them, it's a very different experience than hugging an Italian. <laughs> so all of these things are not, they're not just determinative in themselves, but they're sort of a perfect storm, unfortunately, for Italy. And then I think most suggestions that each Italian that has died has had two or three uh, either congestive heart failure or pulmonary issues or diabetes along with the coronavirus. And more importantly, when you get up over 80 and you start looking at charts, how long do people live uh, each year, the percentages are not very good. I mean, there's about 20% death rate for every year over 80 with a person. So the question is, how many people would have died this year in Italy that were 81 with these, and it's pretty high, and I don't know if it's as high as ha that have died. It won't be quite that high, but when you put all these factors together, it's understandable why Italy's having this problem. That was Victor Davis Hansen. You're listening to American View on Quarantine. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to American View on Quarantine on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We continue now our interview with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. So last question, I got to let you go here. But, um, you know, obviously the Democrats have already begun politicizing this virus. I know you've addressed this a bit so far. Um, they're talking about having committees where they're going to investigate the president's reaction to the virus and the, the administration's reaction. And they want these committees to happen right before the the election in November. How do you think the president will fare up against um, Democrats that are clearly going to do everything possible to make this election about President Trump's reaction to the virus? Yeah, I think there's three things that we'll have to look for. One is how Trump does with the virus. And that would mean, I think, that he would have to get the country back to a normal state of affairs sometime between May 1st and June 1st. And then the economy would be, it doesn't have to recover, but it has to be ascendant during the election. And then people have to have time to digest how he did compared to other countries. And I think he, there's a good chance he can do that. And then number two, it'll be interesting to see what the Democrats will do when their, the counter arguments flood the airways. Now, what would those be? Those would be things like Anthony Fauci sound bites saying this is going to be like the flu we don't want to do anything unusual in january or the world health organization saying you can't this can't be transmitted between humans carrying the chinese lion or nancy pelosi in mid-january excuse me in mid-february after the ban here in san francisco saying everybody come out to chinatown and shop there's nothing to be afraid of and so then what I'm getting at is in the opposition would have to, sh to show that, you know what, Trump uh, was uh, reckless in a way we were not reckless. And when Joe Biden says that the travel ban, which is the most important thing that Trump did, was racist and xenophobic, that's not going to be a good soundbite. Mm -hmm. Then finally, it's, all these elections are never a popularity contest. They're a choice between biden and trump and they're not in the abstract i mean you don't hear biden much anymore but you do hear trump and he's 50 50 so would you vote for biden or trump and probably biden will have an edge in the polls but when you actually see biden and hear him it's a whole other story a story a whole other story and that's why we've seen that he's curt he set up a studio in his home he was going to get daily <laughs> fireside chats and he tried to do it ad hoc 
and extempore. He couldn't do it. He tried to do it on the script. He couldn't do it. And now they disappear. And he's yeah. tweeting, tweeting. And that tells me that even with the rest that he had, he's not campaigning for 18-hour days. He's just sort of relaxed. I thought he did pretty well in the Sanders debate. So I thought, you know, he's going to get a long time, 30 days just to sleep in. He'll be rested. And when he does these little things, it'll be pretty effective. And yeah. it's just the opposite. The more arrests he had, the worse he got. Yeah. Well, Dr. Hansen, thank you so much. We're out of time here. we got to go to commercial. But um, thank you again for talking with us. Uh, this was Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. He has an updated version of his book, The Case for Trump Out, a New York Times bestseller. And it just came out March 17th. So make sure you can find it on Amazon, among other places. We'll be back right after this break. This is American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. So that was just Victor Davis Hansen. If you just tuned in for the last part of his interview talking about the election, he had a lot to say on um, the virus and its possible origins having stretched back a lot earlier. And that as we get these antibody tests, we might find out that, in fact, this virus has been around for a long time and that millions of Americans are already immune to it. And that it's really the no different than the flu, that the mortality, mortality rate is much lower. This, for me, Teddy, I just, I had to be thinking, this could, if he's right about this, because this could answer all the questions that nobody can really seem to explain right now. The first one being, why is it that the West Coast is not getting hit as hard? Maybe it's because there's so many Asians that travel to cities like Seattle and LA that, you know, they got the virus much earlier, and that was the big flu season we saw um, that happened, you know, early, early on over, over the winter. What, what did you think about that, Teddy? I think it's certainly an interesting case. It definitely points to a, just yet another example as to why there's so much that we don't know yet about the coronavirus. We won't know for months, probably years, the exact origins and reasons and w the way this spread. There's a lot of research to be done, and yet the media keeps making it a sensation. And uh, it's just, I would say, sowing a lot of a lot of uh, fear and a lot of confusion. And they're sowing a lot of fear and confusion. And the truth is, just because, you know, the experts say one thing today, a lot of the things that we know, and this is something we said last week too, a lot of the things we know change. They're making predictions based on false information that China has been giving us. We know this week, a big story this week was that the U.S. government basically admitted, yeah, China's been lying about a lot of stuff. Big shocker there. I think we could have told you that weeks ago. Um, and hopefully you already knew that. But, you know, in addition to that, it just it makes you wonder if the origins of this change, which is still a possibility, you know, it, it, it could really change a lot. And it also changes what, what does it mean to be asymptomatic? We don't know yet if asymptomatic people actually are spreading the virus. We don't know that for sure. What they can't figure out is why do so many people in the United States get this virus and they think they've had no contact from it. But the reality is, you know, getting the flu in the United States, you get the regular flu. It's not like you have to have been in contact with somebody that, that had the flu. The virus is just out there. And, and so it would answer in some ways if the virus is already heavily present in the United States and we just started tracking it. And then that could really change um, what we're seeing. Now, obviously, we've seen spikes in hospitals with people um, needing ventilators. That's the part that I'm, I want more information about. You know, why is it that, that New York City now suddenly all the hospitals are really full? Um, what, what is happening there on that aspect? And um, Victor had some interesting things, I guess, to say about that, too. Yeah, certainly one of the big things to, uh, that I took away from that Victor Davis Hanson interview was the number of flights that have come in from East Asia uh, to California in the months leading up to this pandemic spread in the United States. Millions and millions of travelers. That could also explain New York's situation too, another big travel hub, obviously. Um, this is not necessarily groundbreaking news, but I think that it will, uh, going forward in the post-corona world, whatever that ends up looking like, may be a little bit less trusting of the hyper-globalized world that we live in with all of its, with all of its travel and all, of its, um, all the negative consequences that are, less, that are harder to see. Yeah, so more on that later. Thanks, Teddy. So more on that later. 
Um, and, and, you know, all I want to say lastly is just pay attention to Teddy has a good point. You know, we're going to learn more information in the next couple of weeks. Pay attention to any stories involving antibody tests. Those are going to probably be accessible very soon to the public. And that's going to change, I think, what we know about this virus by a lot. So now we go to an interview with Rich Masters, who's an executive vice president for public affairs from Bio, a bio- biotechnology innovation organization, which is the largest biotechnology trade organization in the world. This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Welcome back to American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. With me right now is Rich Masters. He's the Executive Vice President for Public Affairs at BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, which is the largest trade association in the world that represents over 800 small and large biotechnology companies across the nation. Rich, thank you for joining us this morning. Happy to do it, Ben. All right. So I'm really curious. I I understand that just last week your organization led a summit, a virtual summit, that is, with some of the key government officials that are addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of those included even Dr. Burks. Isn't that right? Uh, Yeah, Ben, we sure did. So our association represents, as you mentioned, like 800 of the small laboratories uh, in America that are working really hard um, on three specific aspects of uh, this current healthcare crisis. So uh, when a pandemic like this or an epidemic occurs, uh, there are kind of three things that um, uh, science companies work on. The first uh, is diagnostic. I mean, how do you find out if someone has it? The second is treatment. How do you treat people uh, that actually come down with it? And the third and perhaps the most valuable is how do you prevent it? So that's vaccines, in other words, Ben. So um, our companies are working on all three of those. We have 800 companies. Of those 800 companies, somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 to 50 companies are working on one of those three kind of pillars. Uh, And so one of the things we uh, found out is because everyone is working in their own individual labs, when you have 40 companies working in their own individual labs, sometimes they Mm -hmm. are not even talking to one another. I mean, if you can kind of try to put a picture of it. So as uh, the organization that represents all of them, we decided to bring uh, the companies that are working on uh, the diagnostics, uh, the treatments, and the vaccines together all in one place so that they could talk to uh, Ambassador Burks, who uh, many of your listeners there in Michigan know, uh, is the uh, uh, is one of the White House leads. Works with President Trump um, on the uh, COVID nineteen uh, response. Uh, works with President and Vice President uh, Mike Pence uh, on that. So she was part of this. Uh, head of the CDC. Uh, NIH, all of the kind of the government agencies. And the reason we did it, Ben, was so mm-hmm. that um, the 45 uh, companies could are, can work with the government to come up with these kind of three solutions. I mean, the government certainly cannot do it on its own. It needs private industry uh, to kind of step up and help. And that's exactly what the summit was to do, to kind of coordinate that response, to share information uh, so that we can get to a diagnostic and a, a treatment and a, and a and a vaccine as quick as possible. So what were some of those most promising solutions you would say that, that, that came across at the summit? Well, I mean, there are several. I mean, probably um, for our economy. So there's a lot of people right now, every American is worried about the economy and getting back to work, which is, which is really important. Everyone is also worried about making sure that people who become sick with this uh, have a treatment. So the treatments are very important. But why the diagnostics and the vaccines are of particular importance is if, for instance, Ben, you may have contracted uh, coronavirus, but you didn't even know it. A lot of the people are asymptomatic. But if you did have it and you could take a quick blood test and they say, Ben, you actually already had coronavirus, which means you're immune, which means you can actually go out and, um, you know, you, you have a certain level of immunity. So that helps people get back to work. Vaccines also to that same thing is once there is a vaccine that has been developed 
uh, and tested in clinical trials, once that happens, we can start putting America back to work, which is uh, incredibly important. So some of the many things that we talked about were um, uh, diagnostic tools, because as you're hearing reports right. everywhere, and especially there in Michigan, that there's long delays from the time someone gets tested before it comes back and says that they are um, – uh, says that they are okay or says that they have uh, tested either positive or negative. So we now have one of our companies that's been able to develop a diagnostic in which you can get rapid results back so that we can begin treating or you know whether or not you've become immune. So there, there were several uh, promising, uh, you know, promising uh, therapeutics, therapies, and gene technologies that were all discussed at our summit. Very cool. And, and you know, one of those I, I've been reading a lot about recently that we've been talking about on this show is the antibody testing as well. I, I don't know if that came up, but I understand it's the concept that you can test people that may have already been exposed to the virus, and that way you understand whether or not they are immune and can go back to work. Did that come up at all, Summit? Absolutely. Uh, it sure did, Ben. And it is, um, as you know, um, as I think we talk about, it's, it's probably one of the more important aspects of the whole thing. Uh, if you can test with a little pinprick um, whether or not you have built up the antibodies to be able to resist this, uh, it's probably for our economy the most important piece. Um, and so we have several companies that are working on that. Um, there is some promising uh, science. Again, this has to be you know, tested. Um, the hard part that we've got here, Ben, of course, is that we're in the midst of a crisis and we have to, we have to be careful because we want to make sure that we don't give people false hope and say, you know, if you have the antibiotics, you can walk, you know, amongst people that have it and won't be infected again. That is the working science for sure, uh, but we want to, we have to make sure that that is actually, actually accurate, and that's what makes science difficult sometimes. So we don't, we don't know for sure whether or not having the antibodies means that you can't infect other people. It's certainly the working theory right now, but like all therapies, uh, it has to be tested and tested thoroughly because we don't want to say uh, to the United States of America, once you've had it, you, it's blanket, you can never get it again. I think they right. need to have a, have a real so a solid base of science. Um, I think that's the working theory. That's the way it works in mo with most viruses, and I know that that is a huge, a huge component of it. But again, we want to make sure the science is safe before we uh, roll these things out. Now, the tests have come out pretty quickly. We've seen new tests come out, tests that can test, like you said, in just a couple minutes. Um, and, and whereas a vaccine, obviously, it's a different process. It takes months, if not years, to, to get approved through all the hurdles. What would an antibody test like this, how long would that take? Well, I'm not a scientist, um, yeah. so I, you know, I, I will tell you that you know what we have been reading and seeing uh, amongst our companies and within the popular media is that will be potentially available significantly sooner than um, a vaccine will. We'll feel more confident in uh, the ability to be able to predict whether antibodies um, in an antibody injection would be able to uh, make someone immune quicker than we will be able to go through a whole battery of tests on the, uh, on the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously, I, I think it's great for the listeners to, to be able to hear from you, Rich, because as, as a, a spokesperson for one of the, the largest you know, trade organizations that represents all these small biotechnology companies across the country, um, you, you represent not just those companies, but in a large part, private uh, medicine um, and, and the, the research and development sector of it that, you know, a lot of countries don't really have, where a lot of countries, obviously, their tests, some would argue they got quicker because they had a nationalized uh, medicine plan, and a lot of this research was, was run by the government. What do you say to critics that want American healthcare to be more nationalized for a lot of this research and development that's done by private companies to instead be done by the government? It's a great question, uh, Ben, and it's one that uh, we struggle with. Let me just draw this picture for you. Um, the world is in the midst of a major pandemic. Who is the world looking to to invent the cure and 
in the vaccines and the diagnostics. It's American companies. Um, it's American technology. It's American biotechnology. So let me give you an example. In Europe, uh, you know, in the early 1990s in Europe, uh, Europe led the world in terms of uh, developing cures for diseases. Uh, and in the early uh, 90s and in the mid-90s, uh, most of the European company, uh, countries went to uh, socialized medicine in which they fixed drug prices um, based not on the market, but based uh, solely on arbitrary figures. What happened? All of that manufacturing, all of that drug uh, science and innovation where do you think it moved? It moved to the United States because a market-based economy allows people uh, to – allows companies and allows science to have a more robust discussion um, of how we invent cures. Uh, there is a role for government, most certainly, and governments have a huge uh, role in determining how these things are rolled out. It's what makes the United States so special and has for so many years is that the government sets up regulations to uh, uh, help the country, but it has to work with private industry and private business that have private incentives uh, to be able to have science um, uh, flourish and grow. So w we just have to look back at history, Ben, um, and look at how um, uh, price fixing uh, may sound really good, but what it did in Europe is it killed science and moved science to the United States. Uh, and now the eyes of the world are on the United States to come up with the diagnostics, the treatments, and the vaccines uh, for COVID. Why? Because we have a market-based uh, economy and we have a market-based healthcare system. Now, last question, Rich. Uh, you mentioned that there is a good role for government uh, in this system in the United States, the market-based system. Do you believe that the United States government, that the FDA uh, has been inhibiting or has it been has it been acceptable and the regulation that it's provided thus far in light of the, you know, the crazy circumstances that we're in today with this virus? Another really solid question. And the truth of it is, um, no one, this is an unprecedented situation um, in our lifetimes. And so I think both uh, the government as well as private sector are trying to figure it out. Uh, and what you have here is you've got really smart, well-meaning people uh, at the FDA, uh, in the administration, in the, the Department of Health and Human uh, uh, Resources, D D H uh, HHS. Um, you've got good people at the CDC and the NIH, and they're all trying to kind of grapple uh, with a rapidly changing um, event. And so as someone who has uh, been close and watched the CDC and others operate, uh, I think they're doing the, the best they can do. I think there will be a lot of lessons learned um, from both the private sector as well as the government um, so that uh, when this passes, um, there will be a much more refreshed, much more nuanced playbook on how to operate if in the unfortunate event something like this happens again. Because I think as Bill Gates said the other day, we've known for a long time it's a matter of not when a pandemic like this uh, occurs, uh, but in not if it occurs, but when uh, it, it, it occurs. And I think um, even if we get through this, uh, we will be more prepared to face other challenges, healthcare challenges, public healthcare challenges on down the road. So I always try to look for the silver lining uh, in everything. Uh, and I certainly think that, uh, and I know the people are taking notes and we'll be able to be better prepared next time this happens. Well, Rich, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on the show to talk with us this morning. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ben. I sure appreciate you and everything you're doing. Well, likewise to you and your folks at Bio as well. That was Rich Masters, the Executive Vice President for Public Affairs at Bio, the biotechnology innovation organization that represents over 800 small and large biotechnology companies across the nation. Welcome back to American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Ben Dietrich here along with Teddy Burkhofer, and this is American View on Quarantine, a special edition. We've had a big jam-packed show today, interviews with Victor Davis Hansen, as well as with Rich Masters from Bio. Now, um, the next couple minutes, this next segment, this is actually only available to our online listeners. We're out of time on the radio today, as, as you heard from the last segment. But we, Teddy and I want to talk about two more things before we go. 
the first thing it was what I want to bring up is the hydrochloroquine um, debacle has continued and Teddy has some interesting things you may not have initially realized about the the big jobs report numbers that we're seeing coming out today so it's going to be interesting here first though on the hydrochloroquine point look uh, all week, you know, this has been such a partisan point that we've seen de- debated back and forth. The president last week was talking about hydrochloroquine as a drug that's showing a lot of promise. And this week we've seen from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times both more studies supporting what the president was saying to the point where the liberal media has had to backtrack their initial arguments. Now, to be clear on this, the, the only reason, I think, that we've seen such a strong opposition against this drug is because of the dis- deranged syndrome that most of these Democrats, including several Democrat governors, have towards President Trump. Unfortunately, the worst person, uh, I think, who's handled this has been our own mi- governor, Governor Whitmer from Michigan, who I don't think she has any clue what she's doing. So, you know, if you're a Hillsdale resident, and you're thinking about voting for her, I would strongly caution against that um, in the coming years. Because let's just talk about what she did. So after President Trump talked about hydrochloroquine, she decided to send a executive order letter um, down to all the doctors in the state threatening anybody who dared provide hydroxychloroquine to their patients uh, who could be contracting, who could be positive for coronavirus. Basically threatening to take away their doctor's license, threatening um, additional action. This really worried a lot of doctors because in the hot spots of Michigan, as you all know, um, you know, in the Detroit area, one of the key ways that they're actually treating people right now is with hydroxychloroquine and some other drugs. So now she's reversed this because clearly the evidence was just too overwhelming. But the arguments that liberals use, because they, they pretend, of course, to be supporting their arguments with reason, but it's not the case. And I'm going to prove that right now. The first one is that, well, hydroxychloroquine was untested um, and uh, it's dangerous to be used until uh, approved by the FDA. This one can be shut down super quickly. Um, first of all, the drug has been around for 50 years. So far, you know, it, it's actually listed on the World Health Organization as one of the essential drugs um, that we, we have because it's, it's been along for so long. We know all the side effects as, as it's used to treat malaria. Um, and in addition to that, it's generic now. Um, and so a lot of people produce it. Um, yes, it is true that the FDA has not gone through the same clinical trials specifically for the treatment of coronavirus, but a lot of drugs are used for off-label use. Uh, and the FDA actually just this Sunday approved it being used for off-label use in this, this circumstance. That, of course, has come because so many doctors have 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 seen uh, success with this this medicine. Now, there's been studies, of course, some of these studies have been smaller. I just want to point out, though, that um, it, it will be interesting to see as we get more information. You can find, you know, the New York Times has a study out about it, and then also the Wall Street Journal has a great article online where you can see all the studies that have come out so far. This is this is based on evidence not just from COVID-19, but also from SARS virus, which is a similar coronavirus that we saw earlier, obviously, years ago. Now, the second argument, which has become more common, is that there are shortages. And I, I just want to say that this is one that also I think a lot of these these news sites have been very misleading about. The New York Times, even in this this article about the new tests um, that have been done, says, well, we have to remember that there are shortages across the country. They suggest to Americans that somehow people who need the medicine for their malaria-related diseases or other diseases aren't able to get the pills. That is just not the case. If you go to the FDA website, you can look it up, and they have a list of every single drug and the shortages, um, every single drug that has shortages in the country. While hydroxychloroquine is on the list, if you click on it, um, it says experiencing some shortages. And what that means is, and this is where they're lying to you, and you, you guys all deserve to know the truth, is you go on the list and you click on it, and you'll see that there are actually, in fact, um, seven providers of the drug, and they're actually adding providers now that are being approved by the FDA. And only I think it's 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 three out of the four have said that they are you know only sending the drug to to the people that have been ordering it previously, and then four others are saying that they still have plenty of the drug. So you know there are several different companies you can go to this drug to to look for it. And in addition to that, President Trump made the point this week that pharmaceutical companies have actually donated 
over 30 million doses of the product of the of the medicine to the U.S. government. So we have massive stockpiles. It's not going away anytime soon. It's not a hard drug to produce. And every single company that is a pharmaceutical company can basically produce it if they want to because it's generic. So that's my quick rundown, guys, on hydroxychloroquine. You should keep on paying attention to it because a uh, new story out today in the New York Post, Washington Times, saying that um, more doctors, a poll was conducted of doctors across the world in hundreds of countries, and they found that hydroxychloroquine is the preferred medicine by, I think it's like 39%, close to that, of those doctors. It is the, the most preferred cure or medicine to be used against the virus. Very interesting as we move forward, wouldn't you say, Teddy? Certainly very interesting, Ben. I would say that there's a lot of hope looking forward as we continue to discover new and new, uh, newer and newer treatments. More and more studies come out. These numbers will start helping people to start helping the medical community to decide uh, what is the best course of action and how we're going to really kind of come out of this uh, physically uh, at, with regards to health. Uh, but I'm not really an expert on that, clearly. I'm not a doctor. But what I can do is tell you some interesting news from the jobs report that just came out. I'm sure many of you guys saw that there was a uh, new, really big, scary number that came out. 6.6 6 million new Americans filed for unemployment benefits in, uh, last week. That is a very huge and scary number. However, a jobs report that came out at the same time also mentioned that there were only a net loss of 700,000 jobs in the country last month. How is this possible? Well, huge firms, firms like Amazon, firms like grocers, all these essential businesses, have added 500,000 new jobs. It was just reported in the Wall Street Journal. Have added now 500,000 jobs in the last month. So there's, this, is a, this is some good news. This is also possibly some bad news. Um, the bad news to me, I think, first off, is that it's, it shows that small businesses are definitely hurting. We're seeing a centralization of jobs. Of course, the good news is, is that uh, the world isn't over. People aren't totally destitute right now. Um, and if Trump can restart the economy in these various regions that are not afflicted as bad, especially the rural regions, uh, like Victor Davis Hansen was talking about earlier, I think that we will see a uh, interesting recovery and hopefully, I mean, my, my big belief personally, and obviously I'm no expert, is that this is all very temporary, a temporary snapback uh, in the sense that once we get through this, once we get post-corona, people are going to want to go back to that old restaurant that was their favorite, that old Italian restaurant. I can see it totally being the case that after coronavirus, you know, things aren't going to be perfect. Things aren't going to be the way they were exactly. But I think that it won't be as bad as the media wants to make it out to seem like it's going to be a seven-year, 10-year recession. Everything's going to be different because I think ultimately they have an agenda. They want that to come true so that in November, people will vote against uh, Donald Trump and vote for their candidate, the media's candidate, whoever it may be, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. Thanks, Teddy, so much. So that was Teddy Berghofer. My name is Ben Dietrich. This has been American View on Quarantine, where Hillsdale meets the nation on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. It's been a jam-packed episode. You're listening to a special segment that's only available to our online listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, American View WRFH. You can find me on Twitter, Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D. We'll be back next week with more news. Um, let us know what you thought of the show, and have a great day, and stay safe out there, guys. Mm-hmm.